Now, if you're a Marvel fan, you may well have seen the new Spider-Man movie uh, that came out just before Christmas. Uh, good, it's worth watching if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, but what's really quite interesting, and uh, hopefully not too big a spoiler if you haven't seen it yet, is that it takes place kind of straight after the last film. There's kind of no time in between. It just picks up where they left off, uh, naturally with Spider-Man in some sort of trouble. Uh, and there's other TV shows, other things like that, that are kind of famous for, for, for kind of having that, that method. There's 24, uh, which is a real classic, and uh, was set, you know, 24 episodes, an hour each, a whole day, uh, in a TV series. Um, and I don't know quite how they can be, you know, just have a cliffhanger at the at three minutes to, to, to the end of every hour. It was very impressive. Uh, but, but that was the kind of premise that it just followed straight on. It did make it very easy to kind of watch more and more because you just kind of could, you could pick it up really easily. It also meant that there was no point in watching it just one episode on its own. You had to kind of watch it as a whole to get to understand the bigger picture. And really that is the same with uh, the Book of Exodus, which we start looking at uh, this afternoon. Uh, in fact, the book in Hebrew begins with the word and. It's not good English to do that, so we were taught that in school, but that's how the book starts. And it's like following on from Genesis, on what, from what's come before, here's kind of what happens next. It's connected, it's part of the, the bigger story uh, the Bible has to tell. And actually, Exodus is a really, really important uh, element of the Old Testament. It teaches us a lot about God, a lot about His people, it helps us understand the gospel more deeply, and there's a lot to be encouraged by as we look through the chapters ahead of us in the weeks ahead. But it makes sense that if it, if it is supposed to be read in the, the sort of within the larger story, to think about what happened previously, what happened in Genesis. And here's just a couple of the headlines, really. Um, in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham, who he calls to, to, to know him and obey him and follow him. And, and God confirms that in chapter 15 with this covenant promise saying, I'll make you a great nation. I'll give you the land, uh, land of Canaan to live in. These really important promises for God's people. But 400 years before the Exodus, these promises seemed to, to, to be under threat. Uh, there was a great famine in the land. There was no food left. Was that, would that mean that the family would ultimately die? Well, God's plans and promises are always good. Uh, and in the later chapters of Genesis, uh, before we get to Exodus, we read the account of Joseph. Joseph is one of Abraham's great-grandsons, uh, and he was sold into slavery in, in Egypt by his brothers, unbelievably. But the, the story is amazing. He becomes what is effectively prime minister of Egypt. He, he organizes the kind of relief effort around the famine, uh, and his family are reunited, and they move to Egypt. And they, they're, they're protected. And they're provided for through all of this. And Joseph, despite all the trials and the suffering that he experienced, he says this in Genesis chapter 50, right at the end. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, the promise was protected. And at the start of Exodus, we, we, see, uh, we see that starting to be fulfilled. If you look at the first few verses, you see the names of the sons of Israel listed out. Joseph was, was one of those. Jacob was one of Jacob's sons, also called Israel. And verse 5 says, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. 70 in all. So 70 people end up in Egypt. 
and it's been about 400 years since then. Uh, and they've multiplied hugely. Look at verse 7. These Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now that's quite a familiar language actually. If you go back to the start of Genesis, God says, go, go and be fruitful. Go and increase in number. And, and so we see that, that land being picked up. That's what God's people were doing. What they were called to do. They were growing. They were increasing. God's plans and promises, they were right on track. And what we have really with the book of Exodus is, is kind of the story of the next generation. You look at verse 6, it says, all Joseph and all his brothers, all of that generation have died. It's all, they've all uh, died, but actually they carry on as God's people. And this is the story of what happens next. Would it all be happy and good times? Well, as we see in the rest of the chapter, that is not to be the case. We're going to consider their, their situation, and we're going to think about what that means uh, for us too. Here's my first heading this morning. God's people increase despite evil oppression. God's people increase despite evil oppression. Verse 8. A new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. This is, this is a new era. New Pharaoh is on the is on the uh, is here to stay, uh, and any favour that God's people might have had in the past uh, because of Joseph, because of how Joseph had led so well, that was long forgotten. It's probably a new dynasty, a new era, kind of a new power within Egypt, and they were no longer friends of Pharaoh. And this new king sees a great threat to his lands. You see that in verses nine and ten. He talks about God's people as a real threat, and ultimately it's because they've been so fruitful that they're now in trouble. Verse 9. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, for they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, when it says leave the country, that, that does read a bit strange, doesn't it? Because if we're worried about them taking over them, Surely them leaving would be the end of the world. Actually, some of the commentaries I was reading suggested that a better translation would be take over the country. That, that makes a lot more sense of Pharaoh's concern. He's worried that, that if they grow any more, other people that might join together and take over. So he makes a plan. The Israelites were now foreigners in a country that hated foreigners. And he makes this new policy, this new uh, decision to kind of basically try and reduce, try and weaken the Israelites as much as he can. In verse 11, we see that they're made into a slave force. Actually, when they arrived, they were uh, the shepherds of Pharaoh, his official shepherds. And now, instead, they are made into forced labor. They build cities for Pharaoh. They face this awful situation. And that really is the stress in the passage. If you, if you look in verses, uh, verse 12, for example. Well, let me read from the middle of verse 12 through to the end of uh, 14. Just notice the emphasis. The Israelites, the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked for them ruthlessly. 
Again and again, it's got this, this language of ruthless, this hard work, real strong labour. They were treated really, really badly. It was awful. Slavery in Egypt was awful. They were treated ruthlessly. A sort of clever tactic, really, a shrewd tactic from Pharaoh. If he turns them into slaves, they would be kept apart from their families, which would reduce the amount of children, so he thinks. There would be more death through illness, through overwork and overexertion. The land that they're supposed to be farming so that they've got enough food for themselves would be neglected because they're working for other people. It was evil, brutal, intolerable mistreatment for God's people. The amazing thing, if you look at verse 12, look at, look at see what it says. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread these plants. You see, they're still growing as God's people. They're still uh, flourishing. Every time, it seems they got more ruthless, they were oppressed more, they were even more fruitful. They, they multiplied even more than that. Surely you think, well, surely you think Pharaoh might pick up on this and see it as a warning. Very clearly, God was with them. But he pays no attention. He, we'll see, he sets himself against God and his people. God's promises, they will not be defeated by any sort of impression or God. We're going to see that story taking place as we go through the book of Exodus. The second thing we see is that God's people increase as they resist evil as individuals. Pharaoh, uh, in verse 15, realises that his plan's not working, and he kind of has this new idea. He goes to the Hebrew midwives, uh, and there's only two names. There are probably more than two midwives in the whole kind of nation. Uh, so the, 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 it's likely that they were probably the, the kind of senior midwives, the, the, the leaders of that. And he commands them that, that any child that they help deliver, that's a boy, must be killed. Kill all the boys. It's an awful, awful thing. Why only the boys? Well, it's probably because of this fear of, of, the, of the power that, that, that Pharaoh seems to have. They would be the ones in that culture at that time who would have been growing up to join the kind of fighting forces or join any sort of army that would then set themselves against Egypt. It was a way of, it was his plan to reduce their strength. And of course, if there, there were girls left, they didn't have any husbands, they could then be married off to the Egyptians uh, and lose their identity as God's people. It's, it's evil. It's an evil plan. Shrewd, as the pastor says. But what's amazing, I think, in this passage is just that the real emphasis given to these, these two uh, ladies mentioned, Shifra and Pua. Do you see that their names are given? You look through the chapter, there, there's the genealogy, and then no one else's name is mentioned. Not even Pharaoh's name, but their names are mentioned. They're, they're highlighted. Uh, and I think we're meant to take note of them, we're meant to see that these, these, these women were real heroes of the faith. He, their heroics are recorded all the time because of what they do. See what they do in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. They stood against uh, Pharaoh, even though, um, even though it could have been death for them. They feared God more than that. They knew who really was in charge. He was in control, and they trusted God. And in verse 20, we see that God was kind because of that. 
The people keep going, they keep growing, they keep multiplying. Uh, and the midwives themselves have families of their own. The way that the passage is written, the way the language is used, it points to the fact that this, this may well have been a, a miraculous thing. They may have been older women without families and, and they have less with children. Uh, so, you know, God very clearly blesses them. They're an amazing example of faith uh, as they stand firm for God in the midst of this horrible oppression and opposition from the Egypts. It's worth talking about verses 18 and 19. Uh, it definitely provokes a discussion because Pharaoh summons them, they, they go to him, uh, and he, he asks why they haven't been doing it, why he's told them to. Look at verse 19, here's what they say. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now they do seem to lie to Pharaoh. And I guess the question, well, there's a lot of debate about what we're supposed to make of this, whether they do lie, whether they don't. It raises that big question, maybe you want to talk about this over tea and coffee. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? There's a big ethical debate around that. I don't think the passage is particularly interested in, in that ethical question. And it's fair to say, actually, that it may not have been a lie. They very well could have been telling the truth to some extent. Maybe, maybe the midwives were arriving after the babies were born. But all the same, whatever, whatever, whatever was happening, it's very clear they were standing against this evil oppressor to save the lives of God's people. And I think God's blessing, God's, God's kindness, is no doubt because of their actions rather than because of any deception on their parts. The people increase despite opposition. So it, it seems like a harsh chapter, doesn't it? It's not, it doesn't look like good news for God's people. But at the same time, they are growing. They are, uh, are increasing all the same. And then we hit verse 22. Pharaoh decides to kind of cut out the middle man or the middle midwife and just get the Egyptians to, 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 to uh, be involved in the genocide. He says, he gave his orders to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. It's awful evil. Just throw them in the river, get rid of them. He is setting himself up against God's people. And I mean setting himself up against God. And that's really going to be a big theme that runs through these chapters. You've got Pharaoh versus God. You've got earthly strength versus heavenly power. And there's only going to be one winner. God will keep his promises. And we'll see there's so much more to come. It's really exciting, but this really just sets the scene for what's ahead. So with all that in mind, then, how do we, how do we then apply that to, our, to us today? What, what should we be taking from a passage like this one? Here's what I'd like to suggest firstly. That God's plans to grow his people are not hindered by oppression. God's plans to grow his people are not hindered by oppression. It's just interesting that whatever Pharaoh attempts, whatever he tries to enforce, whatever his intentions were to kind of oppress and weaken and reduce God's people, it just fails. It doesn't work because God is at work too. His plans, his purposes, his promises, they're far more reliable, they're not going to fail. And we see the similar all the way through. We see the same in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, in the early church, in chapter 8, verse 1, it says that great persecution broke out in Jerusalem. And what happens is the church is kind of scattered throughout the, throughout the land. 
And they go and preach the gospel wherever they go. And the church grows massively because of that. The, the persecution then led to the spread of the gospel. And there's lots of examples throughout history really that, 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 that demonstrate the same thing. It's not always the case, but there is certainly a trend towards that. And actually, as I was preparing for the sermon, I found uh, a research study, some scientific study that, that had been done into this. And they found that, that churches that were not approved by the state, churches that would have faced opposition, were more likely to be growing than churches that, that were approved by the state. And actually, the, the churches with approval, with favour, were struggling. They were in decline because Christians become more comfortable, less distinctive as believers. It's really interesting, isn't it, like that? that on a global scale, they could see different, you know, different countries. They saw this was the trend. The church grew, uh, even though it was being oppressed. Uh, China is a great example of that. Uh, the government in China is very clearly against Christianity. There's like, significant surveillance and monitoring that they, they shut down churches if they're not teaching the right thing. But the church is growing, and Open Doors reckon there are 97 million believers in China today. 97 million. What a staggering reality. Now, I'm not saying this to in any way celebrate persecution or minimize the suffering because it, it truly is awful, the awful reality for many. But at the same time, we want to recognize that there is encouragement to know that, that God is not stopped by persecution. His plans, they do not fail. He will always be working for the ultimate good of his people. And actually, we'll see next week in, the, uh, in Exodus chapter 2, God has great concern for his people. He hears them crying out. And he comes and acts. And it's the same thing. He, he, he doesn't forget his people. If his people suffer unjustly, they, they will be vindicated. Suffering now results in eternal joy. And actually, that perspective probably becomes clearer in people's minds when, when everything else is lost. I think that's a challenge for us today. We, we're very comfortable in many ways. We have no major persecution. Generally, we're doing okay with the government, I'd say, on the most parts. And I think there's a sense in there that this is probably changing to some extent. I don't know, it feels to me like on the horizon there are going to be harder times for people who want to stand up for Christ and stand up for the truth. And we, we maybe need to ask ourselves are we prepared for this? Are we prepared to suffer for our faith? Will we end up rejoicing like the disciples and the apostles in Acts? In Acts chapter 5, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. In 1 Peter, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.13, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is real. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory of God rests on you. Powerful words, aren't they? This, this idea that that they can rejoice in the midst of, of great trial and great difficulty. It's a challenge to us to begin with. Will we trust God's plans? Whatever happens. And no, we're not going to go out of our way to look for persecution. But there's a comfort knowing that if we're trusting Jesus alone, if we're trusting the one who died to save us, we've got nothing to fear. God's plans for us, they are far greater uh, than any suffering we might experience. And that's true as 
church as a whole, but it's also true for us as individuals. The, the second half of the chapter with the example of the, the midwives, I think, should lead to this question for us. Do you fear God more than you fear other people? Do you fear God more than you fear other people? Shipra and Pua, they are great examples for us today. Their names recorded for all, all the time because they resisted in the face of, of real evil and real threat against their life. They resisted and they refused to do what Pharaoh commanded. Remember why, verse 17, they feared God. They knew where the real power and authority lay and it wasn't with Pharaoh. It was with the Lord of all. But to refuse Pharaoh, what a test, what a, what a moment of great faith that was honest, that led to great blessing. I think that's again something for us to consider, something for us to be examining our own hearts. Are we ready to do the same if God calls us to do that? When I was looking up uh, the statistics about China on the Open Doors website, I found a story uh, of a Chinese Christian lady called Grace. That's not her real name. Uh, she's in her late 40s and she was once the, the, the deputy head nurse of a big hospital uh, in, a, in an urban city. And she kind of, you know, she'd got risen up to that position. She'd risen through the ranks over a, a couple of decades. She worked really hard to get to where she had got to. And she had always been, she still is a, a passionate believer who shared the gospel with her colleagues and her friends. But she'd been overlooked for promotions. And one day she gets called into this meeting, this big investigation uh, by the officials of the hospital. And they interrogate her for a whole day about what she's been doing. They ask her colleagues to kind of find out what she's been saying to them. And all of a sudden, her colleagues keep their distance. They're afraid they might get kind of involved in, uh, in this incident. She was demoted. Her pay was slashed. And it says that she, she wrestled with this injustice. She, she repeatedly asked God, why, did, why do I have to suffer in this way? Her, her professional career was, was ruined. It felt like everything that she'd been working towards was, was for nothing. She felt lonely, she felt betrayed. And then this is what she says, ultimately, this little phrase. With God's grace, the frustration and grief gradually left me, she says. I eventually found peace when I accepted what I had always believed, that only God's work has eternal value. Everything else is temporary. It will all pass away. An amazing point to get to that point. That she was able to say, even everything that, that's happened to me, I can, I can you know, trust God with that, because I know that, that actually the things that were, by me sharing my faith at work, that had eternal value, far more than anything else. We may, we, will, sorry, we may well face similar pressures, I think. Uh, our workplaces are becoming less tolerant to people sharing their faith. So let me encourage you to pray for each other, to be talking with each other, to, to seek that strength from Christ, to stand firm for him, even if it costs us, that we would actually value our relationship with Christ more than, more than anything else. It says in Hebrews uh, 12, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. I read that verse this morning and thought it was such an encouraging verse to, to think about. We consider Christ, we, we consider all the suffering that he went through. And we recognize actually that's what we're doing, we're following in his footsteps. 
We have the certainty of eternal life. He is risen from the dead. He has delivered us from sin. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. When people feel big, when people feel dangerous to us, we must remember who is on our side. Just one final point, I think, be good to make briefly. As we go through Exodus in these sermons, it's, it's helpful to also zoom out a little bit and think about Exodus within the, the big picture of the Bible. Uh, and actually what we'll see is that God's rescue in Egypt is a picture of God's rescue uh, of us from our sin. And that leads me to one more point to make, and it's this. That slavery in Egypt was awful, but slavery to sin is worse. Slavery in Egypt was awful, but slavery to sin is worse. In Memphis, in the States, they have a civil rights museum which documents the, the history of the African slave trade and the, the, the racism that is kind of entrenched in the history uh, of, of the United States. And we visited, and it was an experience that really did stay with me. Uh, reading those accounts, seeing the accounts of, of how slaves were treated, it, it genuinely made me sick to my stomach. I, I genuinely nearly threw up in the museum because I was just horrified at how humans had treated other humans, essentially treating them like animals. It was it, it's awful. And I've no doubt that the slavery in Egypt would have been similarly horrifying, similarly brutal, uh, this awful abuse. Slavery like that, it really should make us angry. It is good if it's right to be disturbed by injustice like this, but we, we should feel anger at these evil atrocities. But what's interesting is, is that Jesus says it in John 8.34, he says this, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now I know that in that context, probably the, the slavery, it's not, it's not exactly the same as perhaps the more modern times, the more modern understanding of what we, we hear when we hear the word slavery. But all the same, it's strong. It's strong, isn't it? The fact that we are controlled by sin, ruled by it, ruined by sin. And using that language, it should help us grasp the horror of our condition. It should humble us because there's nothing worse and being a slave to sin. There's no escape from how deeply we have offended the creator of the universe. We have damaged our relationship with him because we're controlled by sin, we are slaves to sin. And sin is hard to grasp. I'm definitely not trying to minimize the evil of slavery. It's truly awful. What I'm trying to help us see is that actually our, our understanding of sin is so often not serious enough. We've turned away from the Holy God. We, we've turned away from the Lord of all. And if, sla if slavery on earth should make us feel sick, then, then surely we should be feeling sick because of the sin in our, on our lives and our hearts. Why do we need the Lord Jesus so badly? Because he saves us from that slavery. He redeems us. He buys us back. He died on the cross to do that. He forgave all of our debts. He restored us to his family, setting us free from slavery. It says in John, a couple of verses later, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. 
We need Jesus to set us free. We're going to consider more about how that happens in Exodus, as God sets his people free, and how that parallels to how we are set free too. But I just thought, it actually, it, it makes sense on a, on a passage that's tinged with quite darkness and, and, and horror, really. It's right for us to pause and do the same and reflect on our own hearts and the condition of them, to remember the depth of our own problem, that we need saving from our sin. And then to thank God that, that Jesus has done that for us, that he cares for us, that he saves us completely. So just encourage you to reflect on that. So to ask for God's help that you will not minimize sin in your life, that you will grasp the, the depth, the horror of it, and the joy to be saved right from those depths, saved by Jesus, it fills us with even more joy. And it also enables us to live in and stand up for him, whatever the cost. Maybe we need to search our hearts and look for places where we've been complacent. We haven't been treating sin like we should. Maybe we need to, to recommit our relationship with God at the start of the new year. Commit to following our Saviour and the grace that he's shown us and been thankful for that. Maybe we need to come to Christ for the first time. Maybe we're suddenly aware of the depth of the sin in our hearts and it's never really hit us before. If that's you, then know that Jesus' love goes much, much deeper and he offers you genuine freedom today. If you come to him, repentance, saying sorry for your sin, and coming in prayer, committing your life to him, he sets you free. What wonderful news that is. There's lots in this passage. There's lots to take away. There's, there's hope for, for persecuted believers. There's challenge for us to, to fear God more than man. And there's the reality of the, the awful weight of sin that, that Jesus has saved us from. Let's tr- why don't we pray and pray that, that God will work in our hearts and, and help us respond to these things. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the book of Exodus and we thank you for the riches of your words and, and what they have to, to speak to us and how you speak through them. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for any suffering that, that, that may come our way because of our faith. That you give us strength to fear you more than fearing man because we know what you've done for us and we know that you'll never let us go. And Lord, would you, would you keep us acknowledging our sin, keep us in frequent repentance to you, trusting in your grace, trusting in your forgiveness, that you have washed us clean, but never taking our, our sin lightly, and never taking your grace for granted. Please be at work in us, Lord, help us grow, help us increase in joy and gratitude for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.